Well, don't clap for me. I just thought that's a great illustration of the ruts in our mind and how easy it is to get stuck in a place when we're called to live in the kingdom. Jesus came to live in the kingdom. A little bit later in this uh, video, he says, <clears throat> it's kind of funny, I was the only person in the world that, had the, that knew how to unride a bike. And I thought to myself, Jesus, when he came, was the only person in the world that knew how to live in the kingdom. To unride the intellectual, the kind of things in our culture, in our world, in our own hearts, in our own spirit that keep us from hearing God, walking in the truth and being sent out to actually make a difference in this world, to do the works of God, to show kindness and love, to actually see people encounter the very power and presence of God. But we get stuck. Because as we're going to look at this sign in John chapter 9, you're going to find that there are a group of people, and I want to go through and have you look at each person as they kind of have their own rut and how they're stuck. And Jesus stood at one point in, in, in the Feast of Tabernacles. We're in John just before this miracle of the, of the spiritually, the blind man who is given sight. Just prior to that, you have this, this um, John telling us that it was the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus showed up. He was going to kind of reveal, in a sense, his glory, why he came. And, and in that time, um, <clears throat> every day, priests would go, and, and they would take golden pitchers to the Pool of Siloam. And at that Pool of Siloam, they'd take the, and they would bring back the water of life that represented the water that came out of the, the, the rock. And, and just prior to that, you remember the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000? You have these miracles that are happening that were to reveal back in the time of Exodus that God's presence was with them. And so the, he, he's, each of these are happening. And at one point, as they're bringing these golden pitchers back, Jesus stands up on that last day, that eighth day, and he says, if anyone's thirsty, just let them come to me and you will drink. That kind of, I'm the water of life. Prior to that, he said, I'm the bread of life in John. And now it's the last day. Every day they go... And they light the, the lamps in the temple, the torches, and it's sundown. The sun is going down. As the sun goes down, the priests light all these. And as they're lighting them, they get done, and Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. Remember that? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's from that statement that we move into John chapter 9, where Jesus basically says, if you can kind of come to a place where you can be like that guy who's riding the bike, saying, I'm riding life pretty well, I can do this pretty well, I'm on this bike, and he says, but that's not how the kingdom works, that's not what it means to live in the presence of God and the heart of God. He, He basically says, you have to learn this life and how to live with the presence of the Holy Spirit and with this word of God in our heart. It's, it's different. And if you're willing to admit the fact that, you know, I don't see everything clearly. I, I am somewhat blind to the works of, of God. I, I want to bring heaven to earth like Jesus prays, but I, I just, I'm, I'm blind. If you, if you can come to that point and admit your own darkness, Jesus says, guess what? If you ask me, I will give you my, my very presence through the Holy Spirit and I will give you the ability to see 
But guess what? It takes time. That's why Paul says it's a renewing of our mind. You will never do this perfectly. Only Jesus did. But you can begin to learn to walk in that. You can begin to do that. And you can walk in the realm of the Holy Spirit, which we're told by Paul is filled with righteousness, a sense of being right before God and doing the right things before others. That you can begin to walk in peace and know the peace of God in the midst of sadness and and fear and circumstances that aren't going your way. And he says, you can also have joy. <clears throat> Not happiness, but joy. Confident in this God who is living with you and is right around you. All that to say, let's look at the very first thing that blinds people. In the first one <clears throat> that we, we see blinded here are the disciples. There's what I would call a, a intellectual blindness. It keeps us from seeing the needs and doing the works of God. And what I mean by that is it's really easy to move from your head into your head and, 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 and remove yourself and your heart from things. I, it's, it's a way of kind of disassociating from, from being in a place where you are in touch with what God may want you to do. And so it's, the way we do this most often is we enter into kind of theological, philosophical, political debates about things. And when we get into our head, we're not in our heart and we're not moving in that way. And what Jesus is seeking to teach the disciples is that they, they are the ones who have been sent to carry the bread of life. And in their life, they are called to meet the needs. And, and here's what they do. Verse 1 of 9, afterward, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture, okay? So hang with me on this. Afterward, as Jesus walked down the street, he noticed a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, here's the disciples' response to this person who's blind. Teacher, whose sin caused this guy's blindness, his own or the sin of his parents? A pretty standard question that day. And most often, as you'll see later in the passage, it was believed that somehow the parents were responsible for that. They were responsible for the consequences of what is occurring in their life. Now, we all know that we all, through our own choices, create consequences. We all know that at times, even our parents can create consequences. A parent can, can be on drugs and have an impact on the child that's born. There's just, and, and then there's the system of the world we live in. Just the world that we live in, filled with people who are sin, it creates consequences. But they're debating this, and they're intellectually caught up on this. And so Jesus answered, listen to his answer, neither. It happened to them so that you would watch him experience God's miracle. This need is before you for an opportunity as you live in your heart with my presence. You have an opportunity to see God do something. And while I'm with you, he says, it's daytime. We must do the works of God who sent me while the light shines. For there is coming a dark night when no one will be able to work. As long as I am with you, my life is the light that pierces the world's darkness. Then Jesus spat on the ground and made some clay with his saliva, and then he anointed the blind man's eyes with the clay. And he said to the blind man, Now go wash the clay from your eyes, catch where? In the ritual pool of Siloam, which literally means scent. Part of what Jesus was doing when those golden pitchers with water were coming was saying, I am the water of life that has been sent by the Father. Part of what he's doing when he says, I am the light of the world, is I am the light in that sense that has been sent by the Father. Here he says it again. Go to the pool of Siloam, the pool called Scent. So he went and washed his face, and he, he came back. He could see for the first time in his life. You know, think about it. If anyone should be able to see what God is doing, it should have been those who are following Jesus. In fact, people in the world all the, all the time are looking and say, if you really represent Christ, then I, I'd like to see how you're following him and, and, and trailing close behind him doing the things that he's doing. 
And Jesus has been testing him, and there's been sign after sign. And the first sign is that water to wine, he can transform lives. And the second sign is, is the healing that happens to this guy who has been, who is um, the official son. He's 30 miles away. It doesn't take, God can heal no matter how far. His distance isn't a matter. He comes to the next guy who's sitting at the pool, and he's at this pool, and he heals him. He's been 38 years. So time, distance, time doesn't matter. God can transform your life, water to wine. And then he comes to the feeding 5,000. You are the bread of life. They pick up 12 baskets, 12 baskets. Each is, again, significant. Each disciple picks up a basket. For Jesus is the bread of life, the manna that comes from heaven. But he, they are individually the ones sent. You and me are sent, if you are following Jesus, to meet the needs of this world. And if you're like them, you're going, how do we do it? Because Jesus was training them. And he turns to them and he says, to, you know, feed those 5,000 to the disciples. And they're going, we can't, because they're looking at their own resources. Well, one guy, one guy, Andrew, kind of feeling foolish, comes up and says, I know everyone else is going to think I'm really stupid, but Jesus, there's, there's a guy with five barley loaves and two fish sticks. What do you think? And Jesus goes, it doesn't matter how foolish you look. Guess what? Whatever you bring to me, I'll use. I'm glad. Even the little bit you have, I can multiply and meet the needs of the world that you see around you. And then they go into this boat. Jesus walks on water because he wants them to know that if you follow him, you will come against opposition, but he will be there. He's viewing you praying, and then as he's praying and sees the need, he moves in and he comes present with them to get them to where they're going. And as they're walking along the road with Jesus, they see a blind man from birth, and their response is to move into their head is to look at this guy and not see them the way that Jesus does. He sees a need and an opportunity for his father to work in this situation. Disciples see an opportunity just to philosophically enter into some kind of theological debate, trying to assess blame for the situation. And what I love about Jesus is how he is always, 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 always portrayed to the Gospels as someone who lives out of his heart. And Jesus assigns no blame. I don't think Jesus is about going around blaming. Jesus is about going about saying, how can I be involved in your life, bring healing and life? And that's what we do. We go about doing that. So the disciples turn to this guy. They see him as uh, basically an object lesson. They reduce him to this intellectual, curious position of what do we do here? And they distance themselves. Ruth Haley Barton puts it this way, they distance themselves from the raw humanity of the situation and their own calling as Christ followers to make a compassionate response. Jesus is trying to get them engaged with their heart, to cause them to see there's an opportunity. There's When it's day, <clears throat> it's only day for a while, there's an opportunity before you, it's for a while. And Jesus is training them to see and to look to their Father in heaven who has the resources to meet that need. Jesus is teaching us in situations like this, when we want to move to our head, what's the right question when you come against a need? What do you think is the right question? I think it's Father in heaven, Jesus, Spirit of God. How do you see this need? How do you feel about this in front of you? What's stirring in your heart? And how do you want me to meet this need, if you want me to meet it at all? What is to stir in my heart? 
<clears throat> so I'm going to bring up something that's kind of controversial, okay? The whole immigrant situation in our country today. I don't care what side you're on, okay? I just want us to look at this for a second, because what we often do is we can spend endless time in debate, I don't care again what side you're on, in our head. And I don't know if that's where Jesus would be. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but more than likely, we're probably not the ones through our debate that's going to settle that. But there is something we can do in the midst of an opportunity. I don't know, God may call everybody to a different place and what that's to be, but I do know one thing, it's really easy for us to get in our heads, to get into a kind of a debate around it, and to get angry and emotional about it, and I think Jesus looks at it, and I think he may look at it differently. He obviously knows what needs to be done, but he does know it's an opportunity, and one of the opportunities when he sees us in that place when we're in our head, I think he cries. Because I think he sees real people and real needs. I'm not sure how our country is to solve this. But I know if we're as a church, we're to be engaged, we're to be engaged with our hearts. And I know, I just, as I was preparing, I was just thinking, and I could give you all kinds of different issues. I'm just using this one because I want to get kicked out of here. Um, (laughs) I'm using this one because we do spend endless amounts of time in our head, and I wonder how much time we spend in our heart. Saying, God, what is going on and, and, and how are you moving in this and how do you want to stir my heart? And the least you can do if you want to do something, which really is the most you can do, is pray. Is pray. Jesus looked at this guy. He didn't see something to cast blame on. He didn't get into some intellectual debate like his disciples wanted to. He said, there's an opportunity here. And at least there's an opportunity to see the works of God meet this need. And yes, you may not have the resources. You can't, you know, you're not making the decisions in government. But boy, we can sure pray and say, God, would you redirect? Would you do what you need to do to meet the needs of people? What is it you're calling us to do? The right question is the one I think Jesus teaches us to ask in all different kind of issues. In light of this opportunity, what are you desiring for me to do, God? Then there's what I call, boy, you're quiet. I'm not saying I have this licked at all, okay? I have to tell you, I move to my head far too often. How do you live in the kingdom? It's really hard. Remember that little thing? <clears throat> it took eight months to retrain the brain, the logarithm. It takes a long time for God to begin to work in your heart, to begin to have you be, even ask the right question. It takes a long time to even bring you to the awareness. And once you get to the awareness, now you have the opportunity, because it's light, to be able to move into it. But that's a whole other message. The next thing is what I call cultural blindness. The neighbors in the story come around it. It's what I call a structural kind of blindness. It's the kind of thing that is bred in us, shaping us. It's the culture around us. It's our values, our belief system. It's the things that we kind of grow up with where we grow up and how we look at life and the lenses that we see life. And those lenses can distort the way that God sees them and in fact cause blindness. So he says in verse 8, this caused quite a stir among the people of the neighborhood, which I imagine it would. For they noticed the blind beggar was now seeing. And they began to say to one another, isn't this the blind man who sat and begged? Some said, no, no, it can't be him. Others said, but it looks just like him. It has to be him. And all the while, the man kept insisting, I'm the man who was blind. 
Finally, they asked him, what has happened to you? He replied, I met the man named Jesus. Catch it, the man named Jesus. And he rubbed clay on my eyes and said, go to the pool named Salome and wash. The one, go to that scent pool. <clears throat> For I'm going to be sending you, Jesus in a sense saying. So I went and while I was washing the clay from my eyes, I began to see for the very first time ever. I'm reading from the tra- Passion Translation, if you want to know what translation. So the people of the neighborhood inquired, where is the man? I have no idea, the man replied. We're looking for Jesus. So the people marched him over to the Pharisees to speak with them. And they were concerned because the miracle Jesus performed by making clay with saliva and anointing the man's eyes happened on the Sabbath day, a day that no one was allowed to work. So how dare Jesus do this? And then the Pharisees asked the man, how did you have your sight restored? He replied, you know what I mean? When I talk about the backward brain, the way you're thinking, how many times you got to ask, well, how did you have your sight restored? He replied, a man anointed my eyes with clay, and then I washed, and now I can see for the first time in my life. These are the neighbors. These are the people, not the Pharisees right now, but the people are the neighbors who are very familiar with this man, and they can't even tell whether it's him or not. Some of them were friends of his parents, and they grieved the day that he was born, and he was born blind. They cried with them. Some of them are are, are, are friends who played with this blind boy, who <clears throat> they would play and go to synagogue together and go to school together, and, and all the different things they would do, they did together. Some of them were f- for friends in the community that probably helped lead this guy, navigate through his perpetual blind life to the places he needed to go, sometimes to the gate where he would be with other crippled and, and hurting people who would be begging. These were the people who should know, who should see, who should understand, but they can't. I believe because they have some kind of like what I would call cultural blindness. In a couple of different ways. One of them is the fact that it's really hard to believe someone who is blind can be made to see. So that, that's a pretty big deal right there, right? The other is, they've come to the Pharisees and the Pharisees said, hey, yeah, yeah, this, this isn't really right. You know, even if this is happening, it's not theologically correct. It's a, you know, their day Saturday, Sabbath. It, it, this was an illegal act, say the religious cops. He stands before these neighbors, he can see, and they're blind to what God has done and who Jesus is. They don't recognize the miraculous sign pointing to God and Jesus. And seeing blind people who can now see just doesn't fit into their paradigm. Just look at their continued disbelief. It almost seems crazy until you realize how deeply embedded our cultural beliefs are. There's an author and theologian. His name is um, Richard Rohr, and he can tell. He says this is you know kind of says in these words how we get stuck into a cultural mindset. Our mind gets set to see in a certain way. He says what people do not see. Most people do not see things as they are as they are, rather they see things as they are. What I've been shaped by, what I value, what I believe, what my mind thinks is what I end up using as a lens to look at things. 
For instance, I'll just give you another example. It might get me upset, or some people upset. If you are raised with the kind of theology that says many of these spiritual gifts, things like words of knowledge, gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, the ability to speak in tongues, interpretation of tongues, all in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you were raised with the understanding that they no longer are necessary, but they happened in the time of the apostles and they ended in the first century church, then you'll have no room to see that happening around you. You'll have to reinterpret what you see by what you believe. These neighbors do not really live far from me when I think about it. I do that all the time with things. What I think is really important that we need to be really careful when it comes to when we look at life. We need to be really careful. We can't let our failures as a church, our lack of experience, our lack of faith from being sent by Jesus the sent one to keep us from doing what the word of God indicates. Jesus sends us out to destroy the works of Satan, to pray for healing, to set people free from habits of sin, to remove the evil oppression that's in their life. And just because we don't see this or experience this doesn't relieve us, in my opinion, from the word of God, our call, and commission to do these works and these signs of God. We cannot make the Bible correspond to who we are. You guess that? Cannot make the Bible correspond to who we are. We must change who we are to correspond to what the Bible says. And that takes the work of saying, God, I need your eyes. I need your Holy Spirit. I need your Holy Spirit and your word to give insight and and illumination and understanding to give revelation. We don't lower the standards of scripture to our level of experience, but we seek God to raise our experience to the reality of his word. I don't know what that means for you or what that means or where that means it for you. Here's one of the things that I think is really interesting. When I just do a quick illustration on this um, as we move to the next three, and we'll move through those kind of quickly. But um, Paul had this kind of thing happen often. In Acts chapter 28, he's on a ship. He's going to Rome. He's going to, um, he's imprisoned as now a Roman soldier. The ship wrecks. They're in a storm. They crash on the island of Malta. They get to the island of Malta. All the, all the people in the boat are, are, are okay and safe. They're standing around a fire that the islanders of Malta, who are what I would call um, animistic in their belief, they believed in, in the fact that... So here, I'll explain it this way. He's standing by the fire. He's putting wood on the fire. And as he does, a viper grabs his arm and bites him. And their first response is because they believe the spirits live in these, in everything, is that, oh, he must be guilty. Well... He keeps standing and and doesn't fall down and continues to work. And he's healthy and good as can be. And now, you know what their response is? He must be a god. That's their cultural belief and mindset and everything else. Now, in our culture, our mechanistic, kind of our, our materialistic, our scientific, I'm trying to get as many ifics as I can in here, okay? Our rationalistic mindset would head a different direction. We would not look at that and say either of those two things. We would go to this extreme over here, and we would say, man, Paul was a lucky dude. Right? That snake must have had no venom in it. It was born genetically without venom. Or we might move to another position and go, boy, Paul, lucky guy, he had these antibodies within his body. But that's not biblical mindset thinking. According to the word of God says, and I could give you story after story after story, it was an intervention, an actual miracle of God. So 
so we are blind by the things that we are trained to see and shape us. And then here's another one. You have this picture of, of the, of the parents. They, they continue. It says, so the people, verse 13, marched him over to the Pharisees to speak with him, which I love that word. You know, they march him over. And this guy, Jesus, is messing up with their cultural beliefs. And then he goes in verse 14. They were concerned because the miracle Jesus performed by making uh, clay with his saliva and anointing man's eyes happened on the Sabbath day, a day that no one was allowed to work. Then the Pharisees asked this, the man, how did you receive your sight? And he goes through and says, says what it all is. And then an argument broke out among the Pharisees over the healing of the blind man on the Sabbath. And some said, this man who performed this healing is clearly from, not from God. He doesn't even observe the Sabbath. Others said, if Jesus is just an ordinary sinner, how could he perform a miracle like that? There's two different thoughts, mindsets. And now you have the parents, which I call fearful blindness. So if you have what I would call intellectual blindness, you then move to what is kind of a cultural blindness. Now you move to what I would call a a fearful blindness. Verse 27, or 17. This prompted them to turn on the man healed of blindness, putting him on the spot in front of them all, demanding an answer. They asked, who do you say he is? And the man who opened your eyes, your blind eyes. He's a prophet of God, the man replied. Now he's moved from saying he's man to now the prophet. And then, the, so they asked his parents, is this your son? Yes, they answered. Was he really born blind? Yes, he was, they replied. So they pressed his parents to answer. Then how is it that he's now seeing we have no idea, they answered. We, we don't know what happened to our son. Ask him. He's a mature adult. He can speak for himself. In parentheses, now the parents were obviously intimidated by the Jewish leaders, for they had already announced to the people that if anyone publicly confessed Jesus as the Messiah, they would be excommunicated. That's why they told them, ask him. He's a mature adult. He can speak for himself. And I find this encounter really fascinating. John points out that it's possible to be blind out of fear. And I think the church, I can live there. It's possible not to see the kingdom of God because the logarithm in our own brain is so tuned into fear. And if you look at these parents, they're so concerned. They're so afraid of getting kicked out of synagogue, getting booted from the church, of doing something that doesn't seem quite like the rest of what the church is doing in that day that they don't even see the work of God. I sometimes wonder if we don't see the expression of the authority and power of the Spirit of God and people encountering Jesus because we are so afraid of what others think about us or what even our church leaders might think about us. They feared rejection from the religious establishment more than they feared from God. They were more concerned with their family and friends' approval than they were God's approval. And this one really gets me. They chose to fear the opinion of others over their son's joy of being able to see for the very first time. It is, as a parent, I just go, often I let my fear get in the way of even sometimes seeing my kids' joy, God-given rightful joy. We're so concerned about other people's approval. We go to work and we're so concerned that where we work, others, you know, make sure that what we're saying is going to really fit in or way we, 
Do you identify with this at all? Anybody here? And then there's what I call the Pharisees. This is just willful blindness. Verse 18, still refusing to believe that the man had been healed. That's just, those words, still refusing to believe. You could underline that. That the man had been healed and was truly blind from birth. Right? Your beliefs have to, if you really believe, if this is what I call the Pharisees, a willful rejection. If you really believe, and it's more not about what you believe, it's about you just don't want to surrender your will to this because it'll mean changes in your life. It would mean changes for them. They were the people of power. They had the power. They used their power to get what they needed, what they wanted. It was through their power and their wealth and whatever it was that they kept other people locked up. What it would mean for them is to submit and say, God, how do you want us to use your power to serve people? That's a huge change. So they willfully still refused to believe and would do everything they could to make their belief system say things that weren't true. This guy could see. He was born from blind. They had enough witnesses, but it doesn't matter. If you do not want to believe, your will will not submit to God. And so, he says, so once again, they summoned the man who was healed of blindness and said to him, okay, now we're going to be really serious here, swear to God, to tell us the truth. We know that the man who healed you is a sinful man. Do you agree? Which is really interesting. It's what the psychologists will call projection, which means what's in your heart you got to put into the hearts of someone else um, because you you can't look at yourself and your own sin, your own dishonesty, your own evil. So they have to look at Jesus who is completely holy, good and pure and have to project their evil in from their hearts into him. Be really careful because we often will see what's in others. That's why Jesus said, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you start looking at people's specs. He's kind of saying, if you spot it, there's a good chance you might got it. It all should cause you passion. Okay, that's... So then he says, the healed man replied, I have no idea what kind of man he is. All I know is that I was blind and now I can see for the first time in my life. I love the NIV says it this way. Once I was blind, but now I see. But what did he do to you, they asked. How did he heal you? The man responded, I told you once and you didn't listen to me. Why do you make me repeat it? Are you wanting to be his followers too? (laughs) This angered the Jewish leaders. They heaped insults on him. Listen, if, if you can't... If you can't um, get rid of the message, you then have to kind of assassinate the messenger in that sense. They heaped insults. You go to character defamation. We can tell you are one of his followers. Now we know it. We are true followers of Moses, for we know that God spoke to Moses directly. But as for this one, we don't know where he's coming from. Well, that's what a surprise this is, the man said. You don't even know where he comes from, but he healed my eyes, and now I can see. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but only to godly people who do his will. Now, he's getting real theological on them. Yet who has ever heard of a man born blind that was healed and given back his eyesight? I tell you the truth. I tell you, if this man isn't from God, he wouldn't be able to heal me like he has, right? Isn't that what our theology says? And some of the Jewish leaders were enraged and said... Just who do you think you are to lecture us? You were born a blind, filthy sinner. So they threw the man out into the street. Unable to debate with him, they resort to name-calling. And their disobedient disbelief is obvious. 
They would rather avoid the truth at all costs and live in willful disbelief, unbelief. And now here's the blind man. I call it ignorant belief. I'm going to ask the team, the worship team, to come as I just share this last point. When Jesus learned they had thrown him out, he went to find him and said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? The man whose blind eyes were healed answered, Who is he, Master? Tell me so that I can place all my faith in him. You see where he was kind of ignorant? He was not knowing who he really was. Jesus replied, you're looking right at him. He's speaking with you. It's me, the one in front of you right now. Then the man threw himself at his feet, worshipped Jesus, and said, Lord, I believe you. I just want you not to be discouraged because if you've said at one point in your life, I want to see in the kingdom, I want to walk in the kingdom, I want to do the works of the kingdom, I want to share with you that from that video we saw, it's going to take the renewing of your mind and a submitted spirit to God that's going to move you in time into that place. But if you really, really want it, you will get there. God promises that. Do you want to see is the things of the kingdom? And what I think is really interesting is that, that Paul tells us, do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You were taught with regard to your former life, says Paul, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, but to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And he shows this process of transformation. It's like almost like a time-lapse photography. Where he sees him as a man, 9-11, calls him a prophet, 9-17, And then finally in 938, the man looks at him and says, Lord, I believe, I believe, I believe. And he worshiped him. I'm going to ask you to stand. As I just read these last scriptures, would you just stand with me? These are Jesus' final thoughts. And John writes, and Jesus said, I have come to judge those who think they can see and they see and, and, and make them blind. For those who are blind, I have come to make them see. So if you are blind and you willfully continue to move in that direction, you will just become more and more blind to the things of God. That's not a small little thing I'm telling you. If you are blind and won't admit your need of God, you won't admit the fact that you need his vision and his sight and you don't come to a place and say Jesus I realize that my sin that my intellectual kind of avoidance that my cultural beliefs that that my fear that even my will keeps me from seeing the way you want me to see if I don't repent of that and say I need you to see he 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 makes a statement I have come to judge those who think they see and I'm just going to make them more and more blind in their willfulness but for those who are blind who admit they need to see I've come to make them see. And some of the Pharisees were standing nearby and overheard these words, and they interrupted Jesus and said, You mean to tell us that we're blind? They were offended. And, and by my even stating the fact that you may be blind, I don't care, you could be in this church for the last 50 years, and you could still be blind. That's not mine, that's what Jesus says, so if you're offended, take it up with Jesus. And Jesus told them, if you would acknowledge your blindness, then your sin would be removed. But now that you claim to see, your sin remains with you. And Jesus said to the blind man, now go, wash the clay from your eyes. And it was at that moment when he went that he saw and was given this this word, this encounter that he was able to share with people the rest of his life. Let's just bow our heads together.
Father, I would ask that as we are in this moment, as your Spirit of God is moving in hearts, week after week, I've just been told from people they've either felt tears, they've felt things like like goosebumps, or they've felt a burning in their heart. There's just different things. However the Lord might be moving in your heart. If you're blind in one of those areas, if you're having trouble seeing, would you just tell him, I, I need you in this area. I need you. I repent of the things that are not true, that I've either been ignorant to or I've been led to believe, and that I've actually willfully chose to believe. I just I come right now before you and I ask that you would deposit into my heart your Holy Spirit, and with that, forgiveness and life and sight that I could live in the kingdom. Father, I just pray that as people open their hearts and they, they now, today, right at this moment, you know, here's the opportunity. He says, it's it's day in this moment. If God is speaking, you just invite him in, would you? Just invite him in. Say, I just want to see life more the way you see it. I'm done with the... Intellectual arrogance, I'm going to move to a place where I start really, God, moving in my heart. However that is, that you would just tell him that. If you're in fear, just say, God, I just ask you to give me boldness. That I might see as you see and speak as you speak. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.